The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network, GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So as we do this episode of the Paracast featuring Kevin D. Randall and our co-host Tim Swartz, I should mention that I attended the International UFO Congress in Mesa, Arizona. And it was kind of a low-key venue this year, according to the co-sponsor Alejandro Rojas, but I did get to talk a few moments with Bryce Zabel and David Marler, who was on the Paracast just very recently. Also, James Fox. And James Fox is currently promoting his new movie, Moment of Contact, about that Brazilian case that he considers the Roswell of Brazil. And with Kevin here, an expert on our Roswell, the, was it Virginia case in Brazil? Do you think it's comparable to Roswell at all? No, I think it's completely different. Roswell was a crash. This really wasn't a crash. It was something else. And there were live aliens running around and that sort of thing. So in that respect, I don't think it's comparable. It might be in a very important case. I'm not saying it's not. Merely saying it's not comparable to Roswell, given the circumstances and the evidence available. So what's your take on that incident? Have you looked into it very much at all or or what? It's never really interested me. There's so many cases out there from around the world that we can take a look at. And that was one that just never fascinated me at all. I read a little bit about it when it first happened, but I haven't done much looking at it since then. So uh, as I say, it just wasn't something that interested me personally. Other than Roswell, are there any other potentially compelling instances of UFO crashes? Of UFO crashes? I think Shag Harbor comes to mind, but I'm not sure that was a crash. I think of it as an emergency landing where they were having problems and they dropped into basically Shag Harbor, the ocean, and stayed underwater for six or seven days before the object disappeared. And the U.S. Navy was involved, the Canadian was involved Canadian police, law enforcement witnesses, and uh, photographs and all kinds of interesting evidence. Uh, Chris Stiles and Don Ledger have done a fantastic job of investigating that case. But as I say, I think, of, think of it more as an emergency landing as opposed to a crash. There were a number of events that I thought of as UFO crashes in the past, a handful of them. But I'm not, I'm not sure about them anymore. Take Las Vegas, for example. And I mean, I, I investigated that case at length and did a lot of work in the uh, Utah aspect of it and the Las Vegas aspect of it. And I am now 
not convinced that it was a UFO crash. It may have been something else. It could have been a bolide as opposed to a UFO, given the circumstances. If you plug the Utah end into it with the uh, Las Vegas end, then, then a bolide kind of loses its importance simply because it persisted for much too long. Evidence from the Utah aspect of it that the craft uh, made made turns, stalled car engines, put out the electrical lights in areas, made a landing and took off. And I've talked to all these people who are involved in that. So I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I don't think of it as a crash anymore. My, and, and no debris was found or no crash site was found. Kecksburg, and I hesitate to say this because Stan Gordon's done so much work on it, but I don't think that was a UFO crash either. I think Roswell is kind of the penultimate case for that. And others that I've looked into, and I've done a couple of books on UFO crashes, um, the latest being Crash When UFOs Fall From the Sky, and that's like 10 years old now. But as I was researching that, I think in the book there's like 110 instances of reported crashes or events like that. And of those, most are explainable in the mundane, uh, terrestrial events and mistakes made by the people and outright hoaxes. So I think if we're looking at this whole thing, if there were the number of UFO crashes that have been reported, and I think some websites have it up to three, 350, 400 cases, we'd be having a whole different conversation now. It has to be a very limited number of events and very isolated events. Roswell was isolated back in 1947. I mean, the town had 15,000 people and most of them were military or related to the military in some fashion. The Local radio stations didn't broadcast much outside the city limits. The closest newspaper, well, the wire service was worked out of Roswell. I guess George Walsh was able to put stories on the wire service from Roswell, and um, Frank Joyce had to go somewhere else to uh, get the story on the on the newswire, and that was why he wasn't the first to break the story out of Roswell. I look at all of that sort of thing, and... There's some interesting stuff, and there's some interesting rockets, and all of that kind of thing. And we look back into the ancient past. I think Jerry Clark talked about a crash of something in 1884 in Nebraska, but I think that's pretty much a hoax, and I think Jerry agrees with that assessment. We have the events from the 1897 airship, but again, most of that is untrue. The Aurora, Texas crash, and I know people are going to hate me for this, but I don't think that had anything to do with the aliens. I was there practically before anybody else actually set foot in Aurora, Texas. And that was like 1971, 1972 that I was there. And I talked to people who were alive in 1897 who didn't remember the event. And uh, I talked to the people at the Wise County Historical Society. Aurora, Texas is in Wise County, and they they told me that there had been two books written about the his, history of Wise County or the history of Aurora, uh, Texas, uh, one in 1907, and the other one I think may have been written a little bit earlier, but both of them mentioned nothing about this. I think the event of light, that uh, some kind of bizarre thing crashing in Aurora, Texas in 1897 would have made the histories in both those books, but it does not. Well, uh, then again, uh, remember that Hayden Hughes was not born then reason I mention now the late Hayden Hughes is that he made a really big fuss over that, didn't he? Well, he was one of those. I think MUFON did a lot of work there. Um, Walt Andrus was there with uh, investigators, and there's film crews there and all that sort of thing. The, the point I'm making is I was there before most of them were. 
uh, simply because I was stationed at Fort Walters, Texas at the time, and it's not that far to Aurora, Texas. So I, I went up there and, and looked around what I could do. But um, there just is no good evidence other than the a couple of newspaper accounts that appeared in 1897. Uh, once, once it became famous, once people started looking into it, I noticed that some of the people I'd talked to early on had changed their stories. Now, well, yes, I remembered I was a little kid at the time and my parents talked about this and we did that and all this sort of thing. And there was all this debris laying around and everybody got samples of it. But all of that has disappeared. And you have to wonder about that. And if you take look at the totality of the 1897 airship cases, the vast majority of them are either misidentifications of natural phenomena or outright hoaxes. I don't know how many newspaper articles I've read from that time period, 1897, uh, March and April of 1897, of the craft landing in various places and uh, the local people talking to the crews. One crew from Texas, uh, in, in a case in Texas, said that they were on their way to bomb the Spanish in Cuba, and this was just prior to the Spanish-American War. Um, there was a wonderful case in Waterloo, Iowa, where the craft supposedly landed on the fairgrounds and the leader of the expedition had fallen overboard and, and drowned in the Cedar River. And I had gotten a drawing of what the craft looked like from the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And later on, uh, when, it, when uh, one of my books was being published, the editor found a photograph of the object from Waterloo, Iowa, but it turned out to be a hoax. And there's an awful lot of that sort of thing going on in the 1897 airship stories. So we we look at the whole thing in that respect and, and the idea of a crash in Aurora, Texas being mysterious when there's absolutely no evidence um, other than um, conflated testimonies in a couple of newspaper articles. You you just have to look at that and say, no, this, this never happened. It didn't happen the way it was talked about. But it was part of this whole mythology that grew up out of this idea of these airships flying around the country. And the other thing you have to look at about that is they were talking about airships. They weren't talking about airplanes or things like that or spacecraft. They're talking about airships, big balloons and 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 that sort of thing, blimp-type objects, not, uh, not what we think of as an alien spacecraft in today's environment. More to come with Kevin, Gene, and Tim. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. 
And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. First, we decide where we want to go. Then we need to know the best way to get there. Hi, my name's Adam Barada. I'm the owner of Advantage Gold. We're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver. Now, we've won the Best of TrustLink Award four years in a row because we educate our clients on how to buy gold and silver the right way. We don't pay celebrity spokespeople millions of dollars. We'd rather pass that value on to you. Call 800-900-8000 and speak with one of our experts. We'll send you a free gold kit along with my latest number one national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. No other network provides the level of customer service we do. When it comes to radio advertising, we are your one-stop shop. And no matter how big or small your business is, we can help. Email us at advertise at GCNlive.com and an experienced advertising executive will help you take the first step towards driving more customers to your business or website. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. I was going to say before we split for our break there, that in 1897, we didn't have Jim Mosley and Gray Barker around to fake things, but we had their predecessors. The newspapers were really fighting hard for circulation, and some editors did not mind making up a story to get you to buy the paper. Well, that's absolutely true. I got an, I got an email a year or two ago from a guy in Iowa, and I'd mentioned the alleged crash in his town in 1897 and he'd gone back through his newspapers and and sent me a lot of information about it turns out it's a hoax of course but he thought it was a delightful story and i was able to put more information about this particular case up on my blog you know so we can we can kind of eliminate that one the other thing that's kind of frightening about this when we look at it from a ufological standpoint is that all elements 
of the modern UFO era appear in the 1897 airship stories. There's abductions, there's cattle mutilations, there's UFO crashes, there's landing traces, there's debris being found. All of these elements are there. And, and you, what you look at it, you say, well, but it's all terrestrially based. There's no evidence of alien visitation. And then you look at the modern era, and you have these same things going on. I just talked to Chris O'Brien a couple of weeks ago about cattle mutilations, and he's convinced the Leroy, Kansas case is authentic. And this is the Alexander Hamilton. And I have to point out, no, we're not talking about the guy that was killed by Aaron Burr, nor are we talking about the officer killed at Washita with Custer. They were all named Alexander Hamilton, but a, a farmer in Leroy, Kansas, talking about this this object hovering overhead and, and pulling a calf up from his corral. And then they found the remains, the, the mutilated remains, a day or two later, uh, some some distance away, Jerry Clark talked to the daughter of Alexander Hamilton. This is back in the 1970s, so uh, you know, people who were alive in 1897 were still alive when we were doing these investigations. Yes, they were very old, but they were still alive. And he talked to the, one of the daughters of Alexander Hamilton who explained that this was just a big joke that they had pulled because they all belonged to this liars club. And then Eddie Bullard found an article from a newspaper in which uh, Hamilton confessed to it being just a big joke and it was just done for a lark. Uh, Chris O'Brien points out that Hamilton went on to be a, an important um, politician from the area. I'm not sure if that really means anything in today's environment, but I just can't accept that story as being authentic. And yet Chris O'Brien thinks, well, there may be something to it. And, and, and that's the beauty of Part of the UFO phenomenon is that we can discuss these things from an intelligent, rational point of view and then eventually agree to disagree on, on the conclusions. I, Jerry Clark and I argued about the Childs Witted case, the airline pilots that saw this bolide back in 1948. And I say bolide, Jerry Clark is convinced it was a, some kind of a spacecraft. I'm convinced they saw a bolide and they were just astonished by the brightness of it. But for the part of the UFO field, the people in the UFO field, we can disagree with these sort of things. But the, but the real point is, the 1897 airship has to be worrisome to thus, uh, those of us in ufology simply because it predates, predicts what the UFO phenomena is going to become after 1947. So uh, we look at all of that stuff. But, but the real point is, I don't think the 1897 airship crashed in Aurora, Texas. Uh, again, on my blog, there's pictures that I took in the graveyard prior to everybody going to the graveyard where this supposedly tombstone was found, which has since disappeared. But I, I, I saw nothing there that would suggest that the alien had been buried, given a good Christian burial, as they said in the newspapers or in the, the mythology of it. Uh, I talked to people who were there, uh, lived there in Aurora, Texas, People who were there in 1897, as, as I mentioned, as children, I talked to the Wise County Historical Society, and I could find nothing to suggest the story was true. Well, that's an interesting thing, too. If there are resemblances to cases in 1897 to cases since 1947, what percentage of the more recent cases can have conventional explanations? I, I think the figure usually quoted is 95% of the... Um, UFO sightings are of mundane terrestrial objects. I'm convinced it's closer to 99 percent are are uh, explainable in the in the mundane. There are some interesting cases. Um, 
I hesitate to bring it up at Roswell. I don't think there's a good explanation for Roswell. I think we've eliminated all the terrestrial explanations through hard work and due diligence in our in our research and eliminating all possibilities, including the nonsensical Project Mogul balloon flight. We're left with no explanation, which doesn't mean there isn't something that we have not uncovered, we have not found that would suggest a mundane explanation. But I think when the Air Force investigated in the mid-1990s, had there been something they had hidden in 1947 for national security reasons or whatever, that they would have trotted that out in 1995 as part of the explanation. And the best they could come up with was, was, was Project Mogul. And to the credit of the Air Force, they published all the documentation they had on Project Mogul. And it said, well, the Mogul flight they point, as, point to as the culprit never flew. So how can it leave debris on the Brazel Ranch if it never flew? So there is, in, in the modern era, cases like that. Leveland also springs to mind. The Leveland, Texas cases from November of 1957, when you had witnesses at multiple locations uh, independently reporting to the sheriff that the close approach of the UFO stalled their car engines or dimmed their headlights and filled their radios full of static. And when the object disappeared, then they could start their cars again. And even the sheriff was involved, and there's good evidence that there were some Air Force officers involved. And I, you know, I laid all that out in the book Level Land, so people can can see that. But but the point simply is, there's another good case with multiple chains of evidence, multiple witnesses independently reporting virtually the same thing. Uh, that's a very impressive case, I think. I think a Rendlesham Forest is being interesting. John Burroughs seems to think it has something to do with the history of that era, of that area in England and some of the experimentations had been conducted in the era, area at the time and preceding the, the December 1980 sightings and, and following along after that, but there's no good explanation, current explanation for that. You know. So there are cases where you've got multiple chains of evidence and you have no real terrestrial explanation for it. Does that lead you to the extraterrestrial? Well. For some people, that's sufficient. They say, yes, I would like to see the craft or see the bodies or have something a little more uh, solid to to look at, to take that step to the extraterrestrial. But if you're looking at it uh, from another point of view, I come down on the extraterrestrial side of the fence on some of these cases simply because there is, at the current time, no other explanation. And there doesn't seem to be one in the offing. There is a book out now called The Rendlesham Forest UFO Mystery and Project Honey Badger, which you would, I assume, know about from George Wingfield. And George has been on the Paracast. The book seems interesting because is that not the first time we've heard of conventional explanations for the events at Rendlesham? And that wouldn't change the outcome that John Burroughs getting sick, things like that. But it does give us more possibilities. We have plenty of possibilities with Kevin D. Randall, who's been there and done that, I assume. Tim Swartz, Gene Steinberg, you're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. 
Stock market have you nervous with massive fluctuations? With the impact of inflation and the upcoming midterm elections, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. But with Vantage Point, you won't have to guess. Text MONEY to 813-813 to find out how you can forecast market trend changes with up to 87.4% proven accuracy. That's right, 87.4%. Text the word MONEY to 813-813 and find the consistency and confidence you've been looking for in your trading. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. No more guessing when to get in or out of a trade. Text MONEY to 813-813. We'll send you a link to our free live training. Protect your hard-earned capital with Vantage Point. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. By texting the word DEMO, you agree to the terms available at vantagepointsoftware.com slash terms and consent to receive calls and text using automated technology or pre-recorded voice about offers or info by or on behalf of Vantage Point. Your consent is not a condition of purchase and can be revoked at any time. Message and data rates may apply. Text MONEY to 813-813. USA Radio News. I'm Tony Marusa reporting. Xi Jinping on Sunday will preside over the most dramatic moment of the Communist Party's twice-a-decade Congress and name the members of its elite Politburo Standing Committee in China. With most Americans delaying or skipping new COVID-19 booster jabs, analysts and investors say far fewer will be given each year, pushing the number below annual flu vaccinations. Pfizer, meanwhile, expects to roughly quadruple the price of its vaccine to about $110 to $130 per dose after the U.S. purchase program expires, though insured people likely will keep getting it at no cost. And Twitter's general counsel told employees that the company had no plans for big layoffs after a Washington Post report said Elon Musk planned to get rid of nearly 75% of the staff if his bid to buy the social media firm is successful. This is USA Radio News. Do you have brain fog or loss of short-term memory? Do you suffer from symptoms of hypothyroidism or adrenal fatigue? Do you have deformative joint disease or candida overgrowth? All of these symptoms are associated with mercury toxicity. Most of the mercury toxicity comes from having had gray or silver-looking dental fillings. It does not matter how old the mercury filling is, it still off-gasses 1,000 times more mercury than the EPA considers safe for human exposure. Just replacing your mercury fillings with non-toxic material is only the first step. Unless you apply an effective detoxification protocol, then your body is still poisoned with mercury for the rest of your life. Green Metal Way supplies the precursor to making glutathione. Glutathione is the number one mechanism for removing mercury and other toxins from the body. Order Green Metal Way and get my free report, Mercury Detoxification That Works. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit bestwayprotein.net. That's bestwayprotein.net. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. 
This is Jacques Vallée. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So, Kevin, when we look at Rendlesham, obviously you haven't read Wingfield's book, I don't presume, but just the title, does that give you any hints? I haven't read his book. I've talked to Charles Hall. I've talked to John Burroughs. I've talked to Jim Pettiston. Um, I've talked to Nick Pope. And John Burroughs is the only person, I think, who has ever been fully medically disabled by a UFO event. And he is being compensated by the U.S. government uh, for his disabilities, which I think is interesting because he was on active duty when the events took place and his injuries are directly traceable to the events in the forest. Does that prove the extraterrestrial nature of it? Not at all. It just is kind of an interesting thing and it suggests that there's a real event that took place there and it involved dozens of military personnel. I don't know what it, what it was or what it could have been, but I know what Penniston told me and I know what Burroughs told me and I know what Hall told me is suggestive of some sort of craft or object, I suppose, that doesn't seem to be of uh, conventional nature. So there you go. And it's one of those things where we do not have a universally accepted explanation for, for the events. So that any theory that covers the majority of the evidence is a viable theory until we we are able to limit those theories by looking at the evidence in its totality. In that same month, in 1980, we had the Cash Landrum case. And obviously we had reports of the people involved being injured to one extent or another. Now, in every case, what they suffered could have been caused by some kind of natural effect. It didn't necessarily mean the proximity to a UFO. But what do you think? Well, I would defer to Kurt Collins on that one. Uh, okay. Or, or John John Schuessler, for, for that matter. The only thing that bothers me is this, this idea that there were so many Chinook helicopters involved in chasing the diamond-shaped object. And I've always looked at it from the point of view as a former military pilot from that era, Army helicopter pilot from that era. I don't know where they would have gotten all the helicopters because it would take an awful lot of logistics to support that many Chinook aircraft in that area at that time. And there's absolutely no evidence of them around. They would have to have landed somewhere. They would have to refuel somewhere. There would have to be uh, facilities for uh, feeding the crew members. There would have to be facilities for feeding the the support troops. There would have to be lodging available. There's absolutely nothing to suggest that there was this massive military display at the time that, that Cash and Landrum were injured by the UFO. The other question is, and I hesitate to bring up Philip Class because sometimes he tended to make stuff up sometimes sorry philip well i knew philip i knew philip class and i am trying to be diplomatic here but sometimes he would make stuff up and we can point to things where he'd done that suggest that the medical problems suffered by cash and landrum predated the ufo sighting i know the military didn't take any responsibility for it because they said we have no craft that would have inflicted these sorts of injuries on the uh, witnesses. 
So we have we have a, a, a conundrum there. I, I don't think the descriptions that I've read of their injuries, and I you know, again thank Kirk Collins and Mark John Schusler for, for providing me with the information about that. I don't think the injuries they suffered suggested any sort of pre injury, any any sort of medical condition that predated the the observation. So clearly they were badly affected by the events, and I think some of it uh, reflects uh, radiation sickness, something like that. So we run with it. We run with it from there. I don't know what happened. I, I look if I need information about that. I look to uh, Kurt Collins. I'd, I ask him questions about it. Uh, but it's very perplexing. And the the other interesting thing is it happens about the same time as we had the events over in Rendlesham Forest. I mean, it was late December of 1980, and, and both these events took place in that era, separated by thousands of miles, of course. But still, it's kind of an interesting coincidence. I almost said coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the things that that you said previously that's interesting to me is that, you know, take, for instance, the Aurora, Texas uh, case where, I mean, you had been there in the early 80s and talked to people and nobody remembered what was going on. Yet, once the news starts circulating, then all of a sudden these same people, and you can see this as well with Roswell, then they change their minds and like, oh yeah, well, you know, my grandfather's uh, grandfathers, you know, they used to tell us the story, so on and so forth. And it's almost as it's like we're dealing with a human condition that I don't know where you know people want to join in on the fun, <laughs> you know, maybe unconsciously. And you know, uh, and and we see that with a lot of these cases, and you know, I, I think that Roswell is is a perfect example of this. Absolutely. Back in the nineteen early nineteen nineties. By the way, uh, I I was in in Aurora, Texas, in the early nineteen seventies. So mm-hmm. we we need to get the time right because there were people still alive in the nineteen seventies that were there in nineteen in eighteen ninety seven. Anyway, with with John Keel, um, he had come up with the idea that that Roswell was a result of a Japanese balloon bomb. And during the Second World War, the Japanese launched these balloons from Japan, and they had uh, uh, they had discovered the um, jet stream. And they would put the balloons up in the dr- jet stream, and they would drift across the Atlantic Ocean. And the idea was, after it cycled a few times, uh, during the evening, you know, the, the, the balloon envelope would cool down, and it would sink, and the barometers would drop sandbags, and then it would rise back up. And it would eventually drift over the United States and drop um, incendiary devices or explosive devices. They'd hoped to set some of the forests on fire in the on the western part of the United States. And in fact, remnants of balloon bombs were found as far east as Michigan and far south as Mexico City, and some of them were found in uh, Canada. I think there's like 250, something like that, balloon bombs actually reached the North American continent, and six people in Oregon were killed by a balloon bomb. It was the only casualties, civilian casualties in the Second World War by enemy action in the continental United States, as a point of historical interest, I suppose. But Keel had said, um, by the year 2000, he thought there would be dozens of people coming forward with their tales of them having been in Roswell. And he was absolutely right. We found dozens of people who've come forward with their tales of being in Roswell in 1947. Some of them couldn't prove their, exist- their existence in Roswell at the time frame. Well, how do we know you were there? Well, I was doing this, that, and the other thing. And we said, well, the documentation we have doesn't put you there. It just doesn't work. Um, and one guy in his obituary, it said he may be the last surviving person who had uh, handled the debris from 
the Roswell crash. His story makes absolutely no sense. He was in Roswell in, in 1947 because we found his name in the yearbook or we found his name in the um, uh, Roswell Army Airfield uh, telephone directory. So he was clearly there in 1947, but his story made no sense whatsoever. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely correct that we have that phenomenon. Uh, there was a book um, a number of years ago, oh, 25, 30 years ago now, called Stolen Valor. And what the premise of the book was, was all these people coming forward with their stories of horrific combat in Vietnam. And he, the, the guy who wrote the book, Burnett, I think is, Burkett, Burkett was his name, I think, um, would interview, we were interviewing these people because he was looking for Vietnam veterans who had been in you know, Texas, people from Texas who had been in Vietnam and served in Vietnam. And he would talk to these people and they would tell these horrific stories of combat. And then you'd realize that their, their stories came from the movies. Um, some of them had, hadn't, um, they had been clerk typists, they hadn't been in combat. Some of them hadn't been in Vietnam. Some of them hadn't even been in the military. They were just making up these stories. And there's literally, literally millions of people like that. We had a senator from Iowa who claimed to have been a Vietnam veteran for a while. And I think technically he was, but he had been stationed in the Philippines. And what he would, what he and other pilots would do is they would fly um, aircraft into Tonsonut and then they would fly back to their base in the Philippines. We've got more to come with Kevin and Jean and Tim. You're in the Pedicast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s.com silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions silverlungs.com you'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions the silver lungs generator allows you to make your own so stop paying for silver solutions the unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach see the silver lungs generator and lung delivery system at silverlungs.com that's silverlungs.com Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. 
I need to pay my taxes. What are my payment options? The IRS has several options for paying your taxes. You can pay with IRS Direct Pay, a debit or credit card, or with an electronic funds withdrawal when you e-file your return. If you can't pay the full amount, consider paying over time with an online payment agreement or our Offer in Compromise program. Both tools are available on irs.gov. Go to irs.gov payment to find an option that is best suited for you. When I was a kid, I wanted to be just like Cal Ripken. It's definitely humbling to know that now people are calling me a hero. Instead of finding the IED with my metal detector, the IED found me first, and that resulted in double above knee amputations. It's hard to describe the feeling of meeting somebody that you've always wanted to be like. There are people now that are looking up to you for their inspiration and to be their role model. Visit SaluteHeroes.org to learn more. Have you heard the warning from the dead doctors don't lie guy? I'm talking about Dr. Joel Wallach. He says if you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol or high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, or other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. That's what he says. He has a free lecture revealing what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in his free lecture called Deadly Recipe. You want it free? Call him toll-free at 855-79-YOUNG. You ready? 855-79-YOUNG. Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy, says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We're covering stolen valor, and it's not uncommon for people to sometimes say they have military experience they didn't have. And we see that with politicians, as you pointed out. And we can mention some other names, but we're not because we're not going to be political. But moving on to Roswell again, the thing that occurred to me during a discussion the other day is how much of the memories of Roswell, real or imagined, might have been colored by the book behind the Flying Saucers talking about Aztec. I don't think that had anything to do with the original stories as, as, they, as they were developed. Yeah, but I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that the memories of what happened may have been colored by that I, book. No, I don't, think, I don't think that book had any influence. I think what had influence was the publication of the Roswell incident in 1980. That influenced some of the events. And then the subsequent documentaries and television programs and other books then affected those memories as well. I can see where, well, the best example is Lydia Schleppi. She was the um, secretary to one of the station owners in, I think she was stationed in Albuquerque, but they owned the station. They owned KSWS in Roswell, New Mexico. And she told a story that she was on the teletype machine in July of 1947, putting out the story that Johnny McBoyle, who'd supposedly been out and talked to the talked to Brazel, was putting on the um, over the the newswire, and it was interrupted, and it said, "Do not transmit." 
That story appeared in a Saga magazine in 1976. So the original story couldn't have been colored by any of this stuff because it predated 1980 and predated everything else. When I talked to Lydia Schleppi, she said that it, it said, this is the FBI, do not transmit. I think that's an example of outside influences affecting her memory of the event. We can prove that the event took place because she was talking about it prior to everything. But once we get beyond 1980 and we're into the 1990s, and that's when I talked to Lydia Schleppi, she introduced a couple of other aspects to the case that weren't in the original tale. So we can, we can look at some of these things and say, yeah, they were colored by the discussions with the other witnesses. They were colored by seeing things on television, the documentaries, or reading about it in magazine articles and books. And, and so in that respect, I guess I contributed to some of this confabulated memory because of, of what uh, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey and I had published about the Roswell case. So there is that there is that sort of thing, but we sometimes get lucky and we can go back and see what the original story was. So where did the story of possible alien bodies in connection with Roswell originate then? The original book uh, in uh, 1980, uh, The Roswell Incident, the one with Borlitz Moore and silent yes. contributions from Stanton Friedman. Yes, and Stanton Friedman's contributions were amazing because he told me so. Anyway, um, they get to the Barney Barnett tale, and he's the only one that's talking about alien bodies. Now, when you talked about that, that that's interesting because you were talking about the Aztec influencing it. I think that Barney Barnett was influenced by Behind the Flying Saucers. There was an article that came out in Time magazine in January of 1950, and it, and it is a synopsis of the Aztec case and bodies. And then we move into the 1960s, and Barney Barnett's talking about being involved in this sort of thing. Um, I think that's an influence from from behind the flying saucers. I don't I don't know what possessed Barnett to tell this story, but clearly nothing happened on the plains of San Augustine, and clearly uh, that was the introduction of the, of the bodies. I think Moore and uh, Friedman seized on though that tale because then there were alien bodies to talk about. Later on, as as Don and I were investigating the case, I think the first person to mention alien bodies. I'll take that back. Um, the first person to mention the healing bodies, we were told that there was a mortician involved, but nobody had his name. But they, one person told me that he thought he worked at the Albuquerque Library, Public Library. So I went to the Albuquerque Public Library and talked to all the people there, and they didn't know what I was talking about. I mentioned it to Walter Hott, and uh, he said, oh, I know the name you're fishing for. It's Glenn Dennis. So we bring Glenn Dennis in, and now we've got alien bodies in, in Roswell. I think that might be the genesis of alien bodies in Roswell from that point of view. Frankie Rowe t later on told uh, told me, and later Don Schmidt and Tom Carey and, and others, about her father being involved with seeing the bodies. And we were able to kind of straighten that story out through the investigation. Her father was a firefighter in the Roswell Fire Department. And the story evolved that the Roswell Fire Department had been had made a run outside the city limits because of the fire that was associated with, with part of the craft. And we could find no record of that. And uh, Carl Flock found a firefighter there. His name was Smith, who had been there in 1947. He was like 400 years old when, when we talked to him. But Carl Flock in his book talks about how this guy, J.C. Smith, I think it was, said, well, no, the fire department never made a run out there. 
and, and Carl said, thank you very much. And he reports that in his book, accurately reports that in his book. Well, I talked to the guy and I said to him, do you know Dan Dwyer? He said, oh yeah, he made a run out there. And I said, what? He said, yeah, Dan took his car out there. Uh, this colonel came from the base and it's always a colonel. It's never a captain, never a major, always a colonel. Came from the base and uh, said, you guys don't need to go out there. We got it handled. But Dan Dwyer took his personal car out there and he came upon the, the crash site and he saw the part of the craft and he saw the bodies. And he told his daughter, Frankie Rowe, who would have been Frankie Dwyer at the time, about this and she told us about it. Now, we were able to talk to other members of the family who corroborated her story about what her father had said, had told them. So, you know, it's all in the family type thing, but it was one that kind of fit into the whole scenario as it was developing back in, as Don and I were investigating originally, then Tom and Don were investigating it. Uh, Frankie Rose, very nice lady, by the way, who passed away just recently. So um, I guess I inadvertently suggested that there was some influence from, from the Aztec case and behind the flying saucers in part of the original story uh, but I don't think it was uh, an overwhelming influence. And I think the, the real influential things came out after the Roswell incident book and what, what, what developed. There was an in search, search of episode, I think, in the 1980s with um, Jesse Marcel out in the desert wandering around talking about it. Uh, there was a report from WWL-TV in New Orleans, uh, again, with Jesse Marcel out in the in the desert, I talked to the reporter Johnny Mann about that, and we had some nice discussions. The funny thing is, um, he had copies. Mann had copies of the report as it aired on the television station with Marcel, but he didn't have the raw footage. He thought it was unimportant, so he got rid of it. But he had the raw footage from the Hicks and Parker case, which abduction case, which is kind of interesting. Thought that was a more important case, so. You know, that kind of, I guess, gives you a brief history <laughs> or a not so brief history of the influ outside influences that may have affected the memories of some of the witnesses. Well, is this the uh, is it the same type of, of scenario um, with the suggestion of actual uh, almost intact craft uh, being found because I mean you know the initial reports it was just a, a, a debris field of what looked like little pieces of aluminum aluminum foil almost uh, but then later on I mean the story grows there was you know uh, one craft found you know crashed up against a uh, like a sand dune and then a second one found miles away and you know I mean the next thing you know you've got a mothership hovering overhead dropping down paratroopers well the problem is I think there were those in Roswell who saw this as a good tourist attraction. And so there was an influence on certain people to tell interesting stories about their involvement. Walter Hott, for example, the public affairs officer at Roswell in 1947, for decades said all he did was write the press release. Turned out he may not have written the press release. Turned out somebody else may have written it. He was the one that distributed it to the news media in, in Roswell. Um, he would say that he wasn't sure whether or not he went to Colonel Blanchard's office, the, the commander in Roswell, uh, and was given the, the press release or if um, it was he was called on the telephone and was dictated to him and he wrote it down 
or he gathered just the pieces. And one of the guys in his office who was a better writer than, than Walter Hott put the whole thing together and then Walter Hott went around. But the point simply is his involvement for decades was he was just involved with the press release. And then around 2000, he began talking about a craft and bodies and that sort of thing, um, which kind of changed the perspective of the, of the case. But he was the one that turned us on to Glenn Dennis and told us that everything Glenn Dennis told us was golden. Um, I'm sorry, he told us that everything that Frank Kaufman told us was golden. And Kaufman talked about craft and bodies as well. Before we put the bodies away, or we dig them up, we've got Tim and Kevin and Gene, you're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Extendivite really works. Here's just a few testimonials from Amazon. RL, five stars. Been taking this for two months now. I feel better have more energy. April, my husband started taking Extendivite and he said he feels much better and has more energy. EW, need to try. Everyone needs this for their health. Great product, great people. Josie, it works great. This product has made my blood pressure and cholesterol stable. I highly recommend it. JC, great product, has worked well these last few years. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with Extendivite. Welcome back to the Paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Uh, The story of dead bodies. Also, I'm kind of thinking here in terms of importance. Correct me if I'm wrong, folks. Either of you can comment. If something really important happens, you will find it easier to seize on that memory. But if something doesn't seem quite as important at the time, you can lose some of the fine details. So maybe it is that a lot of the people whose stories kind of were flaky about Roswell didn't consider it 
so momentous when it happened, it all came about later because of the publicity it received. One of the things you're talking about is called flashbulb memories. We allegedly all remember where we were if we were alive when the Kennedy assassination took place or the Challenger exploded or or the the, uh, other shuttle Columbia came apart. We all remember those events. There was a psychology professor at a university, and when the Challenger blew up, what he did was he um, had all the students in his freshman classes write down, uh, answer six, five questions, you know, where were you or what did you hear, blah, 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 that sort of thing. And then when they became seniors, he went back to them and he gave them the same questionnaire. And then he, this, the, the last question was, how accurate do you think your memories were? And he can p- compare the two. And 25% of them were right. I mean, they remembered it exactly. And 25% of them were way off base. And one of the one of the girls said that she was home with her parents when it happened, and she remembered this very vividly. And he said, well, according to this, you were in class that day, and you weren't home with your parents. She said, well, that's not what I remember. So she was completely off base on that. And I think that what, what that tells us is these flashbulb memories that we think of as being etched into our minds as the real event as it took place may not be quite that accurate. Fifty uh, percent of them, you know, they were they weren't very far off. They got a few minor details wrong, but they weren't far off. But the but the point simply is these flashbulb memories, these things that you were kind of mentioning there, aren't as accurate as, as we like to think think they were. And and with Roswell, we not only have that problem, we have all these people who. Um, clearly had no real connection to the event. Whatever the event was, clearly there was an event. Everybody agrees something fell. It was mentioned in the newspapers. It was a big deal internationally for a few hours. And then, of course, it went away when they came up with the balloon explanation. But uh, a lot of the people who claim they were there were not there, so we can eliminate those. And some of the people who were there, their memories are clouded by all the discussion of it. The other thing is every time you access the memories, um, they're slightly altered. I used to tell the story that my Thanksgiving meal when I was in Vietnam was left in the serving line because the flight crews were scrambled. And we had to leave the, we had to go. But I was working on a blog about my somewhat true experiences in Vietnam. And I had a letter that I'd written home. My my mother kept all the letters and I was reading through it. And I discovered that on Thanksgiving, we weren't at our base. We were actually at Tain Inn. And uh, we were promised uh, they would feed us. We were on a standby mission in Tain Inn, which is what, 70 miles north of, northwest of Saigon. And uh, they actually charged us for these crappy meals that we got. But there were times when we would be eating a meal and the flight crews would be scrambled. So, yeah, we sometimes had that happen. And I did leave meals on the table and leave meals on the serving line as as the flight crews were scrambled. But it didn't happen on Thanksgiving. So that's kind of one of these uh, confabulated memories, I guess you would call. It wasn't completely inaccurate. It was just it didn't happen on Thanksgiving. And that's the way things are. Um, I was able to I still can't tell you what happened in Tain Inn or why we were there <laughs> or anything about it. But I have the letter that I wrote home. So I know what I know what happened uh, right after it happened. So. That kind of answers the question. We have to be very careful when we're looking at that. And that's why we want to fall back on documentation when we can. You know, when it comes to the Kennedy assassination, for example, one of those pinpoints, 
I do remember something that doesn't seem to have varied, and that is I was home from school that day. I rode my bike to the post office. I had a post office box, picked up the mail, and everybody looked kind of glum. I wasn't watching TV or listening to the radio, so I came back home, and I think I was working out or something like that. And my father comes home and says, would you turn on the TV? And I said, why? I'm not quoting this exactly. He said, the president has been shot. That's what I remember. Whether true or not, I stand by it. Well, I, I was in, a, I think, a math class in a, what's now called middle school. And the principal came over the public address system in the school, the PA system, and said, I don't want anybody cheering, but the president has been shot in Dallas. And we always thought that was a pretty crass thing to say. I suppose if it had been Trump, there would have been all kinds of cheering in various sections, but uh, this was John Kennedy. Even if Trump were killed, I don't think it's fair, no matter what you think of the guy, oh, granted, to react granted, that way. Granted the premise, my only, my only point was, had it been Trump, that would have been a whole different situation, the reaction of the public, uh, a part of the public. Uh, with Kennedy, he was he was much more universally accepted, and so that when he was assassinated, it was a great shock. And I remember some of the other things around that assassination, you know. But um, that's a whole other story and has little to do with UFOs. But I guess it does sort of. If you were able to uh, look back, if you'd written a diary entry or something like that, some documentation about what happened, how you felt and all of that sort of thing, then you could compare those memories with what you had written down. And that was kind of the thing I was talking about with the Vietnam experiences. You know, I've, got, I've got something like a diary of that, and I've, I've put some of the stories up on a blog called VietnamZero.blogspot because it relates to some um, action-adventure books that I had written with Bob Cornett in the 19, 1980s about Vietnam. But, uh, you know, that that's absolutely right. You've got to take a look at it, and you've got to try to compare it with what documentation you have and compare it with other people's stories and see how all that tracks together. And by doing that, you can sometimes eliminate people's stories from the narrative, whatever that narrative happens to be. Right, but when you look at all this and all the downsides and all the publicity, and this will be the devil's advocate question, how the heck can we ever get to the bottom of Roswell? There's just too much contradiction and too many falsified stories. Well, I did a book cleverly called Understanding Roswell. It just came out not that long ago, and I tried to do that thing by providing all the evidence available on this, you know, looking at it in depth getting into the, some of the minutiae for the people that really want that sort of thing and comparing the stories and saying, you know, this one doesn't track with everything else and this one does and this is how it all fits together. When you want the absolute positive evidence, if it was an alien spacecraft that fell, and I lean in that direction, I have to admit it, although I'm a little bit worried about the lack of documentation and that sort of thing. Uh, but when you look at all of all of that, sort of thing, then you can begin to figure out what is accurate and what is not. It's the way we eliminated Glenn Dennis from the mortician story uh, when, we, when we got to, to talking about that sort of thing, that the Glenn Dennis is apparently making up that and his missing nurse story fell apart when we couldn't, uh, he made up a name. Just said there were, like, like we couldn't check that out. There was military records. I think Vic Goljubic um, managed to get a roster of every woman who'd served in the United States Army as a nurse 
up through 1947, it's like 125,000 names on this document he got, and the name the nurse Glenn Dennis gave has never surfaced. And Glenn Dennis said, well, she was killed in a plane crash with five other nurses in Europe. And um, we could find no documentation to support that. I went through the New York Times. Um, the, the New York Times, back in the olden days when we didn't have the Internet, published an index of all the stories. So you could go to the 1947 index. You could look up aircraft accidents. and was broken down by military and civilian and all of this sort of thing. And you could check. And I went from 1947 through 19, I think, 52. And there was no accident like that. Don Berliner went through the Stars and Stripes, and that's a newspaper published overseas for the military. When I was in Iraq, I always looked forward to getting a hold of the Stars and Stripes because they carried Calvin and Hobbes in it, which is a great comic strip. Before we get on, we have Gene and Kevin and Tim. You're in the Puricast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're like most Americans, you're pretty much in disbelief watching the world lose its mind. As we all know, global problems have local consequences. Too many of them. And if the next news headline spins us into chaos, are you ready? Grocery store supply chains are only as strong as their weakest link. Don't wait for them to break. Today's the day to secure emergency food for everyone in your family. My Patriot Supply is America's largest preparedness company. Our specially packaged and delicious food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. It'll be there when you need it. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and pick up several emergency food kits. There are a dozen different sizes that average over 2,000 calories per day. Our food kits are in stock and ship quickly and discreetly to your door. Having food storage in your home beats standing in government food lines. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented, made-in-America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com 
Tehibo Tea Club's original Pure Pouty Arco Super Tea helps build red corpuscles in the blood, which carry oxygen to our organs and cells. Our organs and cells need oxygen to regenerate themselves. The immune system needs oxygen to develop, and cancer dies in oxygen. So the tea is great for healthy people because it helps build the immune system, and it can truly be miraculous for someone fighting a potentially life-threatening disease due to an infection, diabetes, or cancer. The tea is also organic and naturally caffeine-free. A one-pound package of tea is $49.95, which includes shipping. To order, please visit shopsupertea.com. The first word is shop, spelled S-H-O-P, then the word super, and then the word tea. The complete website is shopsupertea.com or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100. ShopSuperTea.com. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right. We cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. You see, way back when, the New York Times was the newspaper of record. You can't do that now because of space considerations and the fact that they have less personnel because newspapers don't do as well as they used to. Go on, please, Kevin. The Stars and Stripes, Berliner went through the Stars and Stripes and he could find out nothing like that. In today's environment, we'd find it on the Internet. We'd type in aircraft crashes and we could go to the Internet. There's all kinds of agencies if there's an aircraft accident, especially if there's fatalities. It's going to be recorded by somebody. The FAA, the National... The board that investigates plane crashes, whether it's in this country, there's there's similar boards throughout the, the world. You can find documentation one way or another. I can't tell you the number of things I found on the Internet that have been important to understanding ufology. You type the right key, uh, question into the Internet and you can get to uh, information about it. So, you know, back in that era, the newspapers were the place you would go and their files provide us with with very uh, very good information but the glenn dennis story unraveled at that point because we couldn't find the nurse or any evidence of the story that he told us and then when we and i shouldn't say we uh, vic asked glenn dennis about it he said well i lied to you guys you said you wanted a name and i told you at the time i'd give you a name but it wouldn't be the right name dennis never said any such thing to me i had called him one day about some other issue and uh, he wanted to know when are you going to find my nurse and i said well you know we i we found four naomi selfs and they're not the right people i said we were looking for a guy named slusher robert slusher and i said i just talked to a guy today named robert slusher but he was the wrong guy and dennis said oh i know bob slusher lives over in las cruces and so i called that guy and it turned out to be the right guy it's kind of an interesting coincidence getting to write bob slusher who was a crewman in 1947 at roswell the point being, however, 
that Glenn Dennis changed the story radically. Well, I didn't give you the right name. Well, you just set us back to zero on our investigation and other things he said to track with the time frame. Uh, I had mentioned Frank Kaufman. Kaufman talked about bodies because you were talking about that and what how his involvement was. And when we finally got to his military records, we had his records. He gave, gave us copies of his records. Turned out he'd forged them. And when we got the actual documents from St. Louis, they didn't match. He didn't have a background in intelligence. He hadn't been a master sergeant. He hadn't done this. He hadn't done that. And we found out he'd been a, basically a clerk or an administrative NCO. And he'd risen to the rank of staff sergeant. He'd been in the Army for what? The duration of World War II, for example. And he got out and he uh, ended up working at the Roswell Army Airfield as a civilian. What tripped us up is in the um, yearbook that Walter Hopp produced for 1947, there's a picture of Kaufman getting a medal from Payne Jennings, I think it was, who was one of the senior officers at Roswell. I was worried because it looked like it, it's a black and white picture and it looks like it's the World War II victory medal, which is pretty much everybody who served in the military at the time got that medal. So I don't know why there'd be a big presentation for it. But be that as it may, it put Kaufman in the military organization at the time, although he was in civilian clothes when he received the medal. So we have to look at all of that kind of thing and see what we can do to document it and see if the people are telling the stories, if their military career is what they claimed it to be or their background is what they claimed it to be. And if it's not, then we can pretty much eliminate their stories and, and the information. A lot of the Roswell witnesses I now think should be footnotes to the story. You've got to mention them because they've gotten in the way, but their stories really should be footnotes. I think of Gerald Anderson as a footnote to the, the Roswell story, claimed as a five-year-old kid. He'd been on the plains of San Augustine and seen the crashed flying saucer and the alien bodies. Apparently untrue. Said he'd been a Navy SEAL. No record of that at all. And came to the attention of the Navy SEALs, and they were less than pleased with that. So you have to take a look at all of that sort of thing and then sort through it to determine um, what is authentic and compare it to everything else that you can find, either eliminate the story or uh, corroborate it. Once again, though, it's, it's, it's always fascinating to me, these people who are just, you know, just come out and just out and out lie about their experiences. And I always wonder... Are they just, you know, wanting to try to grab that piece of history, not thinking that uh, anybody's going to really look deep into their background or, or, or what? Especially those who, you know, claim to have a military career that can very easily be tracked down. I think that in the past, a lot of the people who claim these military careers didn't realize the resources available. I think of Robert Willingham, who claimed to be uh, claimed the crash in Del Rio, Texas, in 1948 originally, and then it was 1950, and eventually became 1954. And he claimed that he had been an Air Force fighter pilot, and presented documentation. I got to looking into the ba- his background and discovered that he'd been in the military for 13 months, from December of 1945 through January of 1947, 13 months. Was technically a veteran of World War II, even though the shooting had stopped in September of 1945. The war wasn't declared officially over until the middle of 1946, so technically he was a veteran of World War II. Claimed that he had been injured in Korea. No record of that could be found said that he and a friend had been sent to Korea, not as pilots, but as, I think he said radar technicians or something like that. And they they found a couple of P-51s that weren't being used, so they'd go up on their own missions. And I'm thinking, A, how did you rearm them? And B, how did you refuel them? And C, how did you check into the forward air controller? 
uh, all things that you would have had to do and have to know how to do if you were actually who you said you said he was, and just kind of, I think, plugged himself into the UFO field. The original story he told, I found in the MUFON Journal for March of 1968. I think it's on page three, and it's one one paragraph, and it says he was a Civil Air Patrol a lieutenant colonel. Civil Air Patrol being an official auxiliary of the Air Force, and they do a wonderful job. They, they're engaged in search and rescue. They take an awful lot of search and rescue missions off the back of the Air Force. They wear modified Air Force uniforms. It says CAP instead of U.S. and that sort of thing on the collar points. And later on, the story, the story that he told in the um, 1968 MUFON Journal changed significantly. I checked with various government agencies and got his documentation and found out that he wasn't who he claimed to be. I talked to a number of Air Force pilots because Willingham had said that he'd been badly injured, wounded in Korea, and they wouldn't let him fly fighters anymore, so he joined the Air Force Reserve. And I talked to friends about that who were actual fighter pilots in the Air Force, and they said, no, that's not true. The problem is the ejection from the fighters. If you're badly injured, that complicates, had been badly injured, that complicates it. And so you were disqualified from flying the fighters, but you might be able to fly transport planes and some of the bombers and that sort of thing that didn't have ejection systems in them. So that part of his story fell apart as well. But it's just, it's just part of it's to, for the fame, part of it's to get attention. Um, part of it is the 15 minutes in the spotlight, I think. Um, I'm not sure that there's, there's people who make up the stories for the, the purposes of making money um, and, and get on the lecture circuit, circus and tell these ridiculous stories and people buy them. And I, I can't understand why people would listen to these cockamamie stories, but they're just excited about them. You know, if you think of the contactees back in the 1950s talking about their trips to Venus. Yeah, you know? Let's do our break here and we'll continue about the guy from Venus. We've got more to come with Kevin Randall, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz. You're in the podcast. <laughs> for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. SilverLungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at SilverLungs.com. That's SilverLungs.com. I'm Tony Marusa reporting. Authorities on Friday said that they have arrested three suspects in the slayings of two people and the shooting of a police officer after a day-long search on a tribal reservation in northeastern Washington. The Colville Tribe's emergency services said on Facebook Friday that the third suspect was arrested in Elmer City, one of several small communities on the rural reservation. 
Two others were arrested earlier in the day. They were identified as Curry Pinkham and Zachary Holt. They did not release the name of the third man who was arrested. Despite frequent mass shootings, Congress has proven unable to pass substantial gun violence legislation, in part because of resistance from Republicans. But a bipartisan proposal by Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal is gaining momentum following a weekend mass shootings in Texas and Ohio. The still-emerging plan would create a federal grant program to encourage states to adopt red flag laws to take guns away from people believed to be a danger to themselves or others. This is USA Radio News. Radio? Why should I advertise on radio? There's nothing to look at, no pictures. Listen, you can do things on radio you couldn't possibly do on TV. That'll be the day. All right, watch this. Okay, people, and now when I give you the cue, I want the 700-foot mountain of whipped cream to roll into Lake Michigan, which has been drained and filled with hot chocolate. Then the Royal Canadian Air Force will fly overhead, towing a 10-ton maraschino cherry, which will be dropped into the whipped cream to the cheering of 25,000 extras. All right, cue the mountain. Now, you want to try that on television? Well... You see, radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination. Advertising your business with GCN is simple, effective, and more affordable than you might think. Visit advertise.gcnlive.com for more info. Take your business to the next level. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, formerly Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, Air National Guard and Reservist. I'm looking for veterans, active duty military personnel to join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. She needs your skills, courage, and loyalty more than ever. Contact GCNteam.com. Because of the financial and health care collapse, veterans are currently struggling finding jobs. Frustrated looking for a job? Change your tactics. Join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. Start a health care business with FDI Longevity 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com immediately. We're looking for military specialists who can use a computer and communicate information and execute a battle plan. Join the admirals, Navy SEALs, Marines, pilots, Army officers, military police, sheriffs, police officers, firemen, and first responders already enrolled in the 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com now. FDI Longevity will help you apply your military skills to the task of saving America through health and financial programs. Contact GCNteam.com. Enlist in GCNteam.com and save America. Tormey, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Certainly the lure of the lecture circuit has to reign high until people get caught at it. Now, when it comes to faking your military record, is there no instance or no stipulation that you can't really do that? Yeah, it's called the Stolen Valor Act. The Supreme Court determined part of it was unconstitutional because lying is protected free speech. But if you do it to gain an advantage, then it becomes an unlawful act. And and I think there's there's a lot of people now on the internet. Don Shipley comes to mind. He he outs people who claim to be Navy SEALs. You take a look at 
his website or some of the things he posts to YouTube, and it's really kind of funny. He's talking to these guys who claim to be Navy SEALs, and he says, well, what class number were you in? And they can't come up with a class number because they had none. If you ask me my class in flight school, I can tell you the class number. Even 50 years later, I can remember the class number. And what's always funny is he says, well, I've got a complete list of everybody who's ever a Navy SEAL. Can you explain why your name isn't on that? That, that sort of thing. And, and it's just uh, so there is there is ramifications to claiming to be uh, military veterans when you're not. There was a judge in Illinois. Well, he, he claimed to have a Medal of Honor, as a matter of fact. And uh, he got outed because he wanted to get the license plates for the Medal of Honor recipients that Illinois provided. And they wanted to check out his background. So they did it and found out that he was making the whole story up. And he had to resign his judgeship. So there's ramifications. Uh, the publisher of one of the Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona newspapers, I'm not going to say which one because I can't remember exactly, but he'd show up to formal events in a full-dress Air Force officer's uniform. Turned out he never served in the military. Right now, by the way, there's only one major Phoenix, Arizona newspaper. Well, this was a number of years ago. Sure. So, when there were more than one newspaper in a locality. Roswell used to have two daily newspapers for crying out loud, and there's like seven people living there at the time. I made that up. It wasn't seven people. It was more than that. I lived in a place called Chester County in Pennsylvania, one of the suburban counties, two counties to the west of Philadelphia. And you got to think most of these towns had five, ten thousand people. It supported at the time. I have no idea what it's like now. It supported back in the 1970s two daily newspapers. When I lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, we had the same deal, two daily newspapers. And I actually was a, carried one of them. And when I lived in Denver, they had uh, two daily newspapers, the Denver Post and the Rocky Mountain News. And I carried the Rocky Mountain News, which was the morning paper. You know, there was a lot of that sort of thing now. And now the, the newspapers are really pretty much useless. All the news you just read in the newspaper, well, I saw it two or three days ago on the Internet. Also, part of the problem is here is a lot of the newspapers are owned by large chains, and they share material across their affiliate newspapers around the country, like Gannett owns a lot of medium-sized papers, plus USA Today. And therefore, if you get like the Arizona Republic, which is the remaining newspaper in this particular area, and you look at a newspaper owned by the same chain somewhere around the country, you'll find most of the news, except for a small number of local items, and of course the local advertising, are the same. The same, unfortunately, is true for radio broadcasting. And a lot of it is the same for television. What I found funny is John Oliver one day was all outraged because Sinclair Broadcasting, which owns like, I don't know, 100 stations around the country, had sent an editorial to all its various stations it owned to have the local anchors read the editorial. And he had a video of all them reading the same story on the, on the air. And I'm thinking, what was the difference between that and CBS, which a lot of stations are affiliated with, with their anchor telling a story to the same audience? It's, it's really kind of the same thing. It's here's our opinion. And we just, we just don't happen to be CBS. We're Sinclair Broadcasting, who may own the CBS affiliate in your town. But we have our local anchors reading a story that we think is important to, to the well, rest of the country. Yeah, but with most of the local affiliates I'm aware of, other than Sinclair, and I don't know which station, if any, in the Phoenix area is owned by them, you have the network news, or you'll have a network news report, which is carried 
by the local stations, but they'll say, oh, here is John Smith, NBC, CBS, Fox News, ABC or something. They will not present it as their own. Is that really an important consideration? Because you've got the anchor from from the station saying, well, uh, our Sinclair corporate headquarters, uh, Great Television is another one that owns a lot of stations around the country, by the way. I, I don't really don't see the difference between the CBS anchor telling the story and the local anchor telling the story, because it's coming from the same, basically the same, same place. It's the same thing throughout the country. It's the same story going around the country. So I, I just don't see a real big difference there, which I guess gets us kind of off track from UFOs. <laughs> Let's get back on track here. Let me just write the car, the railroad car here. Let's get back on track. Let me ask you kind of an overarching question here. Now, a few years back, you wrote a book called Roswell in the 21st Century. And I gather this is the kind of, it sounded like a wrap-up book where you look at all the evidence, go back through the sources, try to pick the wheat from the chaff, that sort of thing. So how many more books on Roswell do we need to understand this thing? to quote sort of the title of your current book, Understanding Roswell. Because things change. We learn things. Uh, witnesses who were solid at one point don't seem to be so good anymore. Witnesses who didn't seem to be so good actually move up in the chain of command or in the food chain, that sort of thing. And there's a lot of minutia about Roswell that is untrue, and I think we need to eliminate that from the story. For, for example, um, Glenn Dennis, he should be a footnote in the Roswell story now because his story is untrue. You've got to mention him because if you go to any other source looking for information on Roswell, his name's liable to come up. You've got to know who he is and, and where he stands. And and when I did Understanding Roswell, which is the latest book, Roswell in the 21st century was looking at it as a cold case, trying to take a, a dispassionate look at the evidence that existed uh, five or six years ago and explain some of that information. Now, when we move to Understanding Roswell, I've got more information. I've looked at the officers, the senior officers at uh, Roswell in 1947, we've heard a lot of stories about them. What happened to those guys? Um, it turns out one of the guys blew himself up. And when I say that, I, I, I say it, and I, I shouldn't say it quite that way. I think it was Payne Jennings, who was the commander of a squadron in Korea at the time, and they were developing a new big, huge blockbuster bomb. They were transporting it under a B-29, and they lost two of the engines, and they tried to jettison the bomb, and it detonated and blew blew the aircraft up. That was his fate. Another, another of them has been talked about having disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, and it turns out that that's really not quite true. He was on a plane with a lot of other guys from Roswell, as a matter of fact. They were moving from, from Roswell, New Mexico, to England for some reason. And the plane went down in the Atlantic Ocean and the uh, search and rescue plane found them and they were in their life rafts and doing all of that sort of thing. And by the time they could get a ship there, everything was gone. They, they couldn't find them. So they did disappear, but they were like 900 miles north of the Bermuda Triangle. So they didn't disappear in the Bermuda Triangle. So that's really kind of a a misnomer. So you look at all of that stuff and you try to bring the best evidence available to the discussion. And so there were things in this book as I in understanding Roswell as I was putting together that I discovered that eliminate some of the explanations um, that have been offered and provide some additional information about what transpired in Roswell in 1947. And I think it's important to to look at all of that information 
as, as a way of understand, understanding what happened in Roswell and why it is um, the, the story developed the way it has, and that there were any number of people involved in writing about the the Roswell case, and and I think of Professor Moore at um, from Socorro who wrote about the um, the mogul balloons and how he manipulated the data so that he could put a mogul flight over the Brazel Ranch on the proper date, overlooking the fact that. The diary kept by the man running the project in Alamogordo, where they launched the mogul balloons, had written in his field notes and then his personal diary that the launch for June 4th, the, the culprit in this story, was canceled. We'll learn more about this and more with Kevin, Gene, and Tim. You're in. The podcast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. First, we decide where we want to go. Then we need to know the best way to get there. Hi, my name's Adam Barada. I'm the owner of Advantage Gold. We're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver. Now, we've won the Best of TrustLink Award four years in a row because we educate our clients on how to buy gold and silver the right way. We don't pay celebrity spokespeople millions of dollars. We'd rather pass that value on to you. Call 800-900-8000 and speak with one of our experts. We'll send you a free gold kit along with my latest number one national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000. Advantage Gold is not an investment advisor or a tax advisor. Consult with your financial advisor before investing. Call 800-900-8000. Did you know that you could easily be saving up to 90% on your taxes by simply making a phone call? That's right. The Fortune 500, the globalists, all the big billionaires and millionaires, they know about the loopholes written under the law where most of them pay almost zero tax. In fact, many of them pay no tax. You even see it on the news. How are they able to do that? But the common person can. 
So whether you're a school teacher, a lawyer, a scientist, a millionaire, a billionaire, or whether you're just a regular blue-collar worker, everybody should learn about the legal, lawful loopholes. And we've got an organization and a group that I am so proud to be working with, American Tax Solutions. GCN has a special deal with them to get you the best rates. Here's the most important part. They save you money and then get part of the savings. This is an absolute win-win solution. You've got to give them a call at 855-907-4841 or GCNTaxCut.com. That's GCNTaxCut.com. The only way you miss out is not making the phone call. Make it now. Stock market have you nervous with massive fluctuations? With the impact of inflation and the upcoming midterm elections, it's virtually impossible to guess what will happen next. But with Vantage Point, you won't have to guess. Text MONEY to 813-813 to find out how you can forecast market trend changes with up to 87.4% proven accuracy. That's right, 87.4%. Text the word MONEY to 813-813 and find the consistency and confidence you've been looking for in your trading. Vantage Point's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds. No more guessing when to get in or out of a trade. Text MONEY to 813-813. We'll send you a link to our free live training. Protect your hard-earned capital with Vantage Point. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. By texting the word DEMO, you agree to the terms available at vantagepointsoftware.com slash terms and consent to receive calls and text using automated technology or pre-recorded voice about offers or info by or on behalf of Vantage Point. Your consent is not a condition of purchase and can be revoked at any time. Message and data rates may apply. Text MONEY to 813-813. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. Let me ask you something here. The documentation that you looked at for Project Mogul indicates this balloon was never flown. Is it possible any of that stuff about when it was supposed to happen and perhaps didn't happen is flawed to some degree? Because it's the record that we're relying on to determine whether this is a true explanation. There's no indication that the record is flawed. We have the field notes, we have the diary, and then the final reports that were put together as things transpired. It's clear that flight number four was canceled. One of the things I discovered is when you look at many of the books about the Roswell case, they show a diagram of one of these mogul balloon arrays, and it's always flight number two. Flight number two never flew in New Mexico. That flew out of Pennsylvania, and it was about 600 feet long. When they got to Roswell, they reconfigured the thing, so they were about 400 feet long. In other words, they were only about two-thirds as long. But according to the diagrams, there were no Raywind targets on them until later in July. If there was no Raywind target on the balloon launched on June 4th, 1947, well, what was displayed in Ramey's office? He had a Raywind target that was torn up. He said, this is part of what was found in New Mexico. Well, we can now prove that was a lie because there were no Raywind targets associated with Mogul at that time frame. And all you have to do is look at the way the um, balloons were configured and look at some of the duplicity of those who are promoting the uh, the Mogul explanation and how they are are looking at... uh, or trying to deceive the public by manipulating the data. But we've got the raw data. We've got the the information as it was published back in 1947. And we can thank the Air Force for that, by the way. Colonel Weaver told me that when uh, they were doing the investigation, Weaver being in charge of the 1990s investigation, they gathered all this data 
and they published in the book. So you go through the book and you see, well, the June 4th launch, which was supposed to leave the debris, never flew. The other thing you can put together with that is Bill Brazel's testimony, Brazel being the son of Mac Brazel, the guy who found the debris, and where the debris field was happened to be a watering station for the livestock, and that the ranch manager, the ranch foreman, which Mac Brazel was, would get into that field every other day. He would be there maybe every day, at least four times a week. And so you've got this balloon launched on June 4th, and he doesn't find the debris until July 6th. He was in that field every other day. He would have seen it, and he, the problem would have arose much sooner had it been a mogul balloon. The other thing that, that you find out about the mogul arrays is they didn't care what happened to them. There were a couple that they launched, and they said, we didn't recover them because the terrain was too rough. So we just left them out there. And then, then there's others where they did recover them and took them back. And there were cards on the mogul arrays that says, if you find this, call us, and we'll give you money. And so when you when you look at all of that stuff, and some of it I didn't realize until I was putting together Understanding Roswell about the difference in the diagrams of the Mogul arrays, and you can take a look at those and see the differences. And I was looking, where's the Raywind target on, on flight number four? And there were none. They didn't do that at that time. So it, it kind of eliminates the pictures in Ramey's office as being the real debris because there were no Raywind targets. Well, where did that Raywind target come from? Well, they substituted it. Clearly, they had to substitute it because it wasn't on a balloon on the Brazel Ranch. So you can take a look at all of that sort of thing and kind of understand what's going on. So with the explanation that has been put out there that this was a mogul balloon, and obviously it wasn't, it seems to me that there's been deliberate attempts to hide what what really happened, whatever that was. <laughs> well, I thought originally the possibility was they dropped an atomic bomb. Back in 1947, the atomic bomb, the size and shape was classified. I don't know what information you could derive from the size and shape of the atomic bomb, but even the, the look of it was classified. And in, Roswell was the only uh, unit capable of delivering an atomic bomb at that time. They had what they called the silver plate B-29s. They had to have a modified bomb bay for it. So I thought if they had accidentally dropped a mock-up of the atomic bomb, it wouldn't have been a real one, but, but a mock-up to practice with, then that would be a reason to hide exactly what, what had fallen in 1947. So I think that in 1995, had that been the explanation, they would have come out and said, well, we've looked at the evidence, we've looked at everything, and what we've discovered is it was an, a mock-up of an atomic bomb that was dropped out in this field, and we went and picked it up, and we didn't want anybody to know what it looked like or what it was, because that stuff was classified in 1947, but it's unimportant in today's environment. But they didn't do that. They came up with that crappy pop uh, Project Mogul explanation. And uh, and it doesn't work, and I can tell you it doesn't work based on the evidence that the Air Force published in their big, fat book about uh, Roswell. So um, we can eliminate the Roswell. Ex uh, we have no explanation. There is no explanation. The other thing the Air Force did in their investigation was they, they followed some of the footsteps we had already taken and said that, um, well, it wasn't an airplane accident. It wasn't an experimental aircraft accident. It wasn't a rocket from White Sands. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. We already knew that. And the only thing they could they were left with was Project Mogul. Well, they've eliminated, they've eliminated everything else themselves. We've eliminated Mogul. Now, what are you left with? You have nothing. And had it been something classified in 1947, I can't imagine what it would have been 
that they would have kept it classified in 1995 because if they had a legitimate explanation and they trotted it out, we'd all folded our tents and gone home. So, well, yeah, that's it. We're, we're done. We're out of here. Let me ask you, though, about classification, because obviously this is something with which you're familiar. And that is how long will they keep things classified? Is it possible because of the way things are that there are things classified from the 40s and 50s that maybe shouldn't be classified, but still are? There's a great deal from the actually from World War One and, and earlier that is still classified and they're, they're still classified not because they're of any strategic importance, but nobody's gotten around to declassifying them. Top secret, you have to have a review to, re, to declassify it. That's that's the way the rules are. And so if you've got something sitting around in the archives or a vault that's from 1945 and it's labeled top secret, um, it's still top secret, even though the information is no longer useless to anybody. Secret information, for the most part, is regularly downgraded at the three years interval. So you got something that's a secret. Three years later, it becomes confidential. And three years after that, it becomes for official use only, which is you don't even have to safeguard for official use only materials. Uh, top secret doesn't automatically downgrade. Some secret material doesn't automatically downgrade either. It has to be reviewed and, and then did classified. I destroyed an awful lot of classified material when I was uh, an Air Force intelligence officer. It was part of our my duty was to go through the classified material we had and see what was still important and what was not. Um, if it was classified top secret, you had to have two officers certifying it was properly destroyed with secret material. I could certify it destroyed along with the NCO with me. And we took a lot of material over the Great Lakes Naval Station to destroy because they had a thing that pulped them the material and that was that was where we had to go to to uh, destroy it so you know the fact that things are destroyed is no big deal it happens all the time but with top secret like i say if it's um top secret they have to review it to declassify it which is not to say that if, if somebody sends a FOIA request and it relates to top secret material somebody will go in and say well this is no longer important there's no national security issues here there's no reason to keep this classified anymore and they'll downgrade it and send the papers off to somebody sometimes it's well there's some material in here that's not quite we we want to be careful of so you get redacted material stan friedman was famous for showing this document that had all this black stuff on it so you couldn't read you know they like one or two words on each page when the document was finally released to the public and it became no longer a matter of national security we discovered that nothing almost nothing related to ufos and it had to do more with a listening post set up in turkey to spy on the soviet union when when the soviet union broke up there was no reason for that material to be classified and it was released into the public domain so you have to take a look at all of that sort of thing Notice, folks, I have not brought up the possibility that some of this classified material could be unclassified with a mere thought. I'm not going there. I'm not going to get into the politics of this. Let me ask you kind of a general question going back to Roswell, because we're talking about the reliability of witnesses determining that something apparently unknown crashed in 1947. So what I'm going to ask you on the next segment is what now would they have done with it looking at it realistically now and if it were a spaceship what would they have done how would they have handled that event and how long could that be kept secret because that would be such an important story that surely somebody would have come up and said i don't care what they do to me i'm going to die next year i'm just going to say this is what happened this is the truth 
Also, Kevin will be with us for the After the Paracast Premium Podcast for Paracast Plus subscribers, where he'll talk about, amongst other things, his newly updated version of his book, Project Moondust. You won't want to miss it. Check theparacast.plus for more info. We've got Kevin D. Randall, Gene Steinberg, and Tim Swartz. You're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Eating, working, living pain-free. These are things many of us take for granted. But for many adults with disabilities who are elderly or have serious medical issues, dental care is simply unaffordable. Dental Lifeline Network is looking for dentists who can change this. DLN is asking dentists and their teams to volunteer to just see one of the many patients in need. You can literally change a life. When you volunteer with DLN's donated dental services program to see one, you treat a pre-qualified patient in your office at your convenience. We handle the details so you can focus on the care. Lack of dental care can lead to the inability to have life-saving surgery, eat, or contribute to our community. If you are a dentist or know a dentist, please share this message. Will You See One? Visit willyouseeone.org to help change one life in your community today. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So looking at the other end of Roswell, Kevin, where did it go? What's being done about it? And if it were a spaceship truly, how would they have handled it? And what is the danger then? Because it would have to be secrets way above top secret of somebody simply saying, I'm going to be the whistleblower tough. Well, the problem that we, we, there's a, a myriad of problems here. I think back in 1947, they didn't know what they were dealing with. And so they bungled it in the beginning by the press release. I, I cannot understand the purpose of the press release. It makes absolutely no sense, but the press release went out and within three hours, they shut it down. I think that the material would have been taken probably to Wright Field, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, because that's where we had the capability to reverse engineer it. 
I think the General Exxon, who was in at Wright Field in 1947, he's a lieutenant colonel then, talked to us about the bodies coming in and one of them going to Denver because the Army had its mortuary service in Denver at the time and they were looking for the way to the best way to preserve the, the body. Because you've got a biological sample that's from an extraterrestrial being and you're not probably going to get another one. So you want to pursue them as best you can. Uh, we heard that one went to an aeromedical facility in Florida. I'm not sure that's true. And then we've heard that they went to Walter Reed in Washington, D.C. And I'm not sure about that either. Uh, the craft would have gone probably to Wright Field for reverse engineering. I, again, speculate that the technology was so far beyond us that we simply couldn't understand it. And the best example used to be, and is not anymore, but if you took a videotape, a VCR, a TV monitor, and a power pack back to Merlin the Magician, and you showed him this black ribbon, which was the videotape, and you said... You know the secrets, you can get pictures and sound off this. But to do that, he has to understand two things that are invisible, electricity and magnetism. He understands neither one of those. So his technology made him incapable of decrypting, understanding what he had there. He didn't know what he had because he couldn't understand it. I think a technology, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke who said a technology that is sufficiently advanced from our stage would be virtually indistinguishable from magic. And I think that's kind of where we are on the Roswell case. I think that the technology was such that we do not understand it. And I think that as our technology advances, we apply that technology to it to see if we can understand it. I don't think we've succeeded in that. But anyway, if we could understand that, that technology would propel us far beyond our competitors in the world, and we wouldn't want that technology to leak out to them. And I think as the years passed, the number of people who were involved in looking at the material was significantly reduced. And I, I, I look at it as a very small cadre of highly intelligent, very loyal people who are looking at this thing periodically to see if they could apply our technology and understand more of how it worked to it. So you don't get the whistleblowers that you would expect. Look at the major whistleblowers in our experience here. They really weren't read in to all the Materials. I think some of it was a mistake by there's too much classified material being put on computers for sharing and for the convenience of those who are working with it that allows low-level technicians and low-level individuals access to it. But I think this would be separated from that so that only a limited number of people would have access to it. You might present a piece of debris, whatever it is, to a specific group without explaining where it came from and said, what can you tell us about this? And they would be looking at it as a, can we reproduce it? What does it mean type thing? But I think the numbers are very, very small. The problem you had originally was the number of people who were involved in the retrieval operation in Roswell, for example. There were literally, I'd say, hundreds of people involved in some aspect of it. Some of them were doing no more than guarding a, a, a hangar or guarding in the field, others were closer in and saw more, and some of them knew everything that was going on, such as Colonel Blanchard would have known everything. So, so once as those people began to 
pass away. And I think the people who knew the most about it were the career officers, Jesse Marcel being sort of the exception, kind of ratting everything out to Stan Friedman and Len Stringfield in 1978. But as we approached other officers, uh, they would tell us what they knew. I pulled a dirty trick on, on, I think it was either Dewey Fournay or Al Chop, and this has to do with the Washington National sightings. And one of them, I was talking to him, and this is you know, 25, 30 years ago, I was talking to one of them, and he told me one of the one of the sightings, one of the events, got pretty hairy, and I or, or pretty gory. I think maybe use the word gory. I have to go look at my notes or listen to the tapes again. I have it on tape. Um, sighting. I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, I, I really can't talk about that." And I was talking to the other one. I think it was Dewey Fournay, and I said, "Yeah, Al Sharp was telling me about this one sighting. I got pretty hairy. What was that all about?" And he told me everything I needed to know. You know, so um, I was. Used an old trick that I knew more to, to, to suggest I knew more than I really did to get the rest of the information. That's what police do in interrogations. Oh, absolutely. But, but, the, but the thing is, um, I think when you move into certain arenas, um, you've got highly trained, very loyal people, and they're not going to be fooled by this. I talked to a guy named Crookshank, who at one time was in charge of air technical intelligence. He was in charge of the whole foreign technology division, and ATEC was part of his command. And I was talking to him, and he'd been retired for 15 years or something. And I asked him a question. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what's still classified and what is not. And I'm not going to talk to you. And he hung up. That's the way you're supposed to respond. I mean, here was a guy who may have known everything, but he didn't know what was still classified, and he wasn't going to reveal what he knew. On the other hand, um, Pappy Henderson, who apparently flew some of the material, maybe the bodies, to, to Wright Field, um, saw a newspaper, one of those um, tabloid newspapers. And I, I don't know which one it was. Um, it, I think it's now defunct. But anyhow, on the front page was a story about the Roswell crash, and this was... You know, 1979, 1980, that time frame. And he bought the paper, which surprised Sappho Henderson. And she told me that he got in the car and he handed the paper and he said, read that story. And it was about the Roswell crash. And he said, well, I've been wanting to tell you this for years, but I guess since, since it's in the newspaper, I can tell you now. Technically, no. You could not tell him. It doesn't matter it was in the newspapers because you got it as classified information. You shouldn't have been telling her about it. But that's another kind of answer to the, the question about classification. But um, so you take a look at all of that sort of thing and try to determine what's going on. One of the aspects of the whole Roswell thing that always kind of left me, you know, questioning the scenario is that you have a lot of these witnesses who claim to have you know been there at the time maybe you know uh, handled the debris or whatever who who stated that you know right away they realized that they were dealing with something you know otherworldly or, or, or originating from off planet and I just never bought that because considering in 1947 yeah I mean you know you had you know, science fiction movies and, you know, uh, 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 pulp comic books and things like that. But I wouldn't think that the first thing that would come to these people's minds was that this would be something from another planet. Maybe from the Soviet Union, maybe even, you know, uh, Russia using uh, captured Nazi technology. But something otherworldly, I don't buy that. And I think you're absolutely correct. I think when Jesse Marcel says... He's walking in the field in 1980 or 1981 talking to Johnny Mann. He said it was something that uh, 
came to Earth, but it wasn't from Earth. I think that's a conclusion that was drawn long after the event took place. I don't think he got out to the debris field with uh, Cavett and Brazel and said, oh, my God, it's pieces of a spacecraft. I don't think he, he didn't know what it was. Also bear in mind that this was not part of our pop culture in 1947. If this happened in 1982, I think the attitude and the response might have been very different, but I welcome your views when we get to our next segment. Kevin Randall, the book Understanding Roswell. With Tim and Gene, you're in The Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. I'm about to give you a life-changing URL that if you will simply visit it and give these tax consultants a call, it will change your life. Whether you're a blue-collar worker or whether you're a school teacher or whether you're a scientist or whether you're a millionaire, almost no one out there is taking advantage of legal, lawful tax loopholes. Go to GCNTaxCut.com. It takes you right to American Tax Solutions, and they will give you an amazing preview of what they can do for you. GCNTaxCut.com. GCNTaxCut.com. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork, you know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big, bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. 
If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at The Tax Doctor and learn more. 800-932-5140. That's 800-932-5140. Both my legs were amputated due to an IED. It's when you start to try to get back into, like, an everyday life. I absolutely felt like I lost some of my purpose. There must be something more. When DAV came into my life, they gave me a new mission. I could still be a productive member of society, could still support a family. The DAV gave him that sense of structure and purpose again to get his life back together. Visit DAV.org to learn more about our mission. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So returning to that statement from Kevin Randall, if we're looking at the situation you described happening in 1982, for example, because of the pop culture, reactions and responses would be quite different, wouldn't they? They certainly would, but there's something else you you overlook, and I didn't mention it earlier, so it's my fault. Thank you for taking responsibility, because everybody blames me for stuff. What I should have pointed out, why they would suspect, you know, looking at the debris, they couldn't suspect that it was an alien spacecraft. When they found the bodies, they pretty well knew that this was something that was not from Earth. So the people who saw the bodies, and I think Colonel Blanchard, for example, would have realized these are not human people. There's something else going on here. That kind of changed the, the direction of the discussion back in 1947. But the other thing you, you overlook is, according to Frank Joyce, he had interviewed Mac Brazel about this event on the Roswell radio station, uh, KGFL. And as he was leaving... What Frank Joyce said to us, and I think he later modified it for, for Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, he said to me that Brazel had said, you know how they talk about little green men? Well, they weren't green. Well, that set us off, and, and I outlined this in Roswell in the 21st century because you asked, you know, how do we change stuff? When the term little green man entered the lexicon, and that is something that we, we researched when, when did this become a thing, and we discovered a Popeye cartoon from 1938 where he's on Mars fighting green men. There's the Edgar Rice Burroughs series of uh, that started with the princess on Mars about John Carter who projects himself to Mars and in this whole other society, and there's a bunch of green people on Mars, although they're gigantic and have four arms. And they're played in the movie by William Defoe. If you say so. There was a John Carter movie from Disney that yes, I thought I was quite good. It tanked. it tanked, I think, because they didn't know how to handle it. Well, obviously, but that's Disney. But the other thing is there was a story called The Green Man, or there, a, a mythology around The Green Man that, that came out of, of, I think, English folklore. And it was something, something from 19, 1908 about green men being extraterrestrial. So when we look at that sort of thing, and that kind of gives you the depth of the research we went to that I know all this. There's a big long footnote in Roswell in the 21st century that kind of outlines this and all the dates where it goes goes along with this idea of, of alien creatures. Looking at the abduction phenomenon, I bring this up because I think it was a 1908 movie called The Man in the Moon 
gets a wife or something, and this guy in the moon comes out and abducts a woman and takes her back to the moon. So we had alien abduction in 1908 in the the movies. So, you know, the idea that, that it wasn't as pervasive in our society in 1947, it certainly was there. There was Buck Rogers, there was Flash Gordon, that sort of thing. When we move into the 80s, of course, it's much more pervasive. When we got we've got Star Wars, we've got Star Trek, we've got all kinds of movies. Uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers from what 1954. We've got The Day the Earth Stood Still from from 1951. We have This Island Earth can be yours if you know if the price is right. Uh, this Island Earth from uh, the movie 1956. So in that time frame, yeah, it was much more pervasive. But in 1947, it wasn't completely absent. So there's a possibility that people in the area knew it. I, I'm a little hesitant to say that Mac Brazel would have known this, given his rather isolated uh, existence, but you know, we did, we did the research to, to look at all of that, so we were uh, aware of what science fiction and what the movies were doing and that sort of thing in, in 1947. After all this time and after all the uh, uh, excellent research that's been done over the years, uh, do you think that we'll ever have a, a real, provable solution to the Roswell mystery? I believe that we will when the aliens actually land at the White House, although if they're smart, they won't do it this year. But once we have contact, I mean, contact that is legitimized, um, then we'll know, we'll know the answers. Um, there is no motivation for the government to reveal that information now. I did a book called UFOs in the Deep State. premise there is that our elected officials are sort of caretakers of the government, and it's really run by the bureaucrats that go from administration to administration to administration and are, are keeping this under wraps for their own protection and their own uh, financial gain. Uh, if, it, if some of this gets out, if it turns out there's alien spacecraft and you do all these marvelous things, it could badly affect the economy and other things. So I, I looked at you know, it. Explained it a little bit more in depth and a little bit more eloquently in uh, UFOs in the Deep State. I always said if I was the president and I wanted the answer, I'd go to the director of Central Intelligence, tell me all you can about flying saucers. And he says, well, Mr. President, I can't tell you that because it's classified. I'd say, you're fired, bring in your deputy. But talking to Dan Sheehan about his experiences with Jimmy Carter, I realized it may not work that way. And Sheehan was telling me that, that, that Carter had brought in the director of central intelligence, who was George H.W. Bush at the time in the 1980s. And he asked him, tell me about the flying saucers, the UFOs. And Bush said to him, well, I'd like to stay on as DCI once uh, you're inaugurated. And Carter said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm bringing my own guy in. And Bush said, oh, I'm going to tell you. You're not, you're not clear to know you're not president yet. I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, but you know, it kind of occurs to me here. We have two former heads of the CIA, Woolsey and Brennan, and both say we need to investigate to find more about UFOs or UAPs. They don't seem to indicate in their statements that they knew anything whatever as head of the CIA. And they may not. They may have that may be detailed to somebody else. There was an operation called Operation Solo in the, um, back in the it was, it was 60s, 70s, 80s. And a guy named Morris Childs had been the head of the Communist Party in the United States in the 1930s. 
would become dis- dissatisfied with it, but he rose up into the Communist Party. He turned he turned and uh, was feeding information to the FBI. That operation was run out of the FBI office in New York City, and the president didn't know what was going on. He was not read into that operation because they, they, they feared a leak about that. And there's a book, Operation Solo, uh, by John Barron, that details all this. So Moore's Childs became a in essence, a spy for the FBI at the highest levels of the Communist Party in Russia. I mean, he was welcomed. He was invited there. He was uh, brought into high-level meetings. When Kennedy was assassinated, there was a discussion. Was were the Russians involved? What the Russians didn't know was that Childs could speak Russian. He kept that secret from them so he could listen in the conversations, and they wouldn't know that he understood what he was saying. And they were concerned that the that we, the Americans, would think that the Russians had something to do with it. And that kind of eliminates the Russians as culprits in the assassination of Kennedy. But I think the point simply is that the president was not read into this until it became necessary. And it became necessary at one point when Gerald Ford became president and he was going to meet with the Soviets about something. And he was very worried about it. And they brought him in and they told him about Morris Childs and, and what they had and what they what they knew and how, how to operate in that environment. So he was read into it. There's no indication that that um, um, his predecessor Nixon knew about it. And there's no indication that Ronald Reagan knew about it or Jimmy Carter knew about it. Point simply be, being that, that the uh, operation was run out of the FBI office in uh, New York City. And I'm not sure how Hoover probably knew about it because Hoover knew everything about that stuff, but I'm not sure what other bureaucrats did. So there, there's that sort of thing going on. More going on with Gene and Kevin and Tim, you're in. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you have brain fog or loss of short-term memory? Do you suffer from symptoms of hypothyroidism or adrenal fatigue? Do you have deformative joint disease or candida overgrowth? All of these symptoms are associated with mercury toxicity. Most of the mercury toxicity comes from having had gray or silver-looking dental fillings. It does not matter how old the mercury filling is, it still off-gasses 1,000 times more mercury than the EPA considers safe for human exposure. Just replacing your mercury fillings with non-toxic material is only the first step. Unless you apply an effective detoxification protocol, then your body is still poisoned with mercury for the rest of your life. Green Metal Way supplies the precursor to making glutathione. Glutathione is the number one mechanism for removing mercury and other toxins from the body. Order Green Metal Way and get my free report, Mercury Detoxification That Works. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit bestwayprotein.net. That's bestwayprotein.net. USA Radio News. I'm Tony Marusso reporting. Boris Johnson returned to Britain from holiday on Saturday to consider an audacious bid for a second term as prime minister in a race that could pit him against his former finance minister, whose resignation in July helped drive him out of office. Potential candidates to replace Prime Minister Liz Truss, who quit on Thursday after six weeks on the job, were embarking on a frantic weekend of lobbying to secure enough nominations to enter the leadership contest before Monday's deadline. At traffic-choked intersections in this Texas town, a blunt campaign slogan stands out from clusters of candidate signs. Teach ABCs and 123s, not CRTs and LGBTs. 
blood sport politics have come to the school board elections in Round Rock, Texas, a rapidly growing and diversifying suburb of Austin. This is USA Radio News. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, veterinarian and naturopathic physician. The Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy with an important message. Take charge of your health. Do not continue to blindly follow the system that has failed us all. I appreciate GCN listeners because you're open-minded and intelligent. If our system is so great, why is it that the United States, the USA, ranks nearly 60th worldwide in longevity and number one in obesity? All the while, we spend more money than all the other countries combined annually on unnecessary health care procedures and toxic drugs. It doesn't take much to get on track, not with the government or pharmaceutical companies, but rather you in control of your own health with a basic understanding of nutrition and supplementation. FDI Longevity has the finest quality health, sports, and energy supplements available. GCN listeners are invited to join our team of people who want to stay healthy well into old age. We are currently looking for specialists to represent FDI Longevity and save America. To buy products at wholesale prices or join our business team, go to GCNteam.com. That's GCNteam.com. Support GCN. Get healthy. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork, you know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big, bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. While you were talking about that, Kevin, I was thinking here about presidents not being read in. It's almost like what you see in the movie Independence Day, where in that movie they are keeping the wreckage of a UFO plus the alien beings on ice in Area 51. And it turns out the president knew nothing about it. And then his security director says plausible deniability. Well, I think I think it go, I think it really goes beyond that as as well. I think what the problem is there is an awful lot of stuff for the president to deal with, and there are issues that are higher priority. Knowing about flying saucers isn't one of them, and unless something happens that the president needs to know something about it, then he's brought into it. But I think that they it's it's one of these deals. Well, the president doesn't need to know this to operate day to day, so we just don't bring him in on it. But but my my, my point simply was that. If I'm the president and I want to get the information on flying saucers and I go to the DCI and maybe he doesn't know all the in and outs of what's going on in the world of flying saucers, but there's somebody in the CIA who does. and That's his job to do that sort of thing. And he brings the information to the director. When I was a, a, the intelligence officer of the battalion in, in Iraq, there were things that I knew that the battalion commander didn't know. 
if he had asked me a question about it, I would have told him if it became important for the mission for him to know it, I would have told him. But there were things that I knew that he didn't need to know for the daily operation of the battalion in, in Iraq. If it became necessary, then I could feed him the information that he needed. And I think there's all these sort of little things going on around that. But I think that what they do is if, if Bill Clinton wanted to know about flying saucers, so he says to the DCI, tell me about flying saucers. I say, well, you know, Mr. President, that's a very complex question. I'm going to have to draw information from a number of different agencies and let us put together a big report for you and we'll get you, we'll get you brought up to speed on it. And the president says, okay, and he goes off and does something else. And then something happens and his attention is diverted and he forgets about the flying saucers. And then pretty soon he's no longer president, so he doesn't get to know. And I think they use all kinds of dodges to keep the information from from moving up the chain of command. If you get into a situation where the president has to know, they'll tell him. But if he doesn't have to know, they're not going to volunteer the information. And yet they're keeping this secret decade after decade if there is a secret. Well, we clearly can prove that there's been a cover-up. We can clearly prove they've lied to us about UFOs over the years, uh, any number of cases. Uh, in the Leveland case, and when I was researching the book Leveland, I came across a newspaper story that was very interesting, which um, talked about the sheriff of Leveland, Hockley County, Texas, uh, going out looking for the flying saucer, looking for the UFO that had been reported by numerous people in the area. In his car was another deputy sheriff. Following behind him were members of the Texas Department of Public Safety. I think that's what they were called then. I know when I lived in Texas 10 years later, that was what it was called. And in the third car following them were Air Force officers. Now, if you go to the Air Force file, you read that the sheriff said, well, I just saw a streak of light 900 yards away. But if you go to the newspaper clippings, the reporting that was done prior to the Air Force investigation being there and the Air Force investigator coming to Hockley County, the sheriff says, yeah, I saw a bright red glowing oval-shaped object, which matches the description. The other thing that happened, I think it was Don Berlinson discovered that, he talked to the mechanic from the sheriff's department at that time, and he said the sheriff brought his car in the next day to have it checked. Well, the question is, why would he do that? He would do that if his car stalled. And he wanted to know if there was a mechanical reason for that car to stall. And if the sheriff's car stalled, so did the car behind him, and so did the car with the Air Force officers in it. So now we got Air Force officers who were involved in the Leveland case, their car being stalled, and I have not been able to find those guys. I have found very little information. I can document that it was told to reporters prior to the Air Force investigator arriving that that uh, there were car the Air Force officers came from Reese Air Force Base, which I think was about 15 minutes away from Leveland, Texas, Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock. So it was easy for them to get there quickly with the flying saucer going on. In 1957, there would have been reports going from the sheriff or the police department to the Air Force, qu queries going to them about the flying saucer, stalling cars in the area. So the Air Force officers were there. So what that suggests is a cover-up, because when you read the Air Force file on it, you say, well, there were only three people who saw the UFO and it was ball lightning. That's a cover-up. And so we can prove there was a cover-up because ball lightning is a preposterous explanation. There were more than three people. And if you read the file carefully, the, the entirety of the Air Force file, you can find the names of at least five people who saw the object. And if you go any deeper, you can find 13 people, people at 13 separate locations that saw the object. And uh, the sheriff said that he got dozens of phone calls about the UFO that night. So the Air Force file is kind of a... Um, 
poor investigation of what happened in Level Land in 1957. And I say I laid, laid all this out in detail with the proper references in uh, in the book Level Land, so you can you can see exactly where the information came from and what the re, what the response was. But it's it's a much more in depth and important case than had been led on, and the Air Force managed to keep it keep it hidden away for 50 or 60 years. And you think here, too, with Project Blue Book, how much of that was just a PR operation just to mollify the public? After 1953, that's exactly what it became. In 1947, when they first were presented with the UFOs, with the um, flying saucers, they were very concerned about it because they didn't know what was going on. And I think you read Ruppelt's book and you discover that the Pentagon was in a panic. But they quickly realized that there was no invasion fleet standing off by the moon ready to land, and there was no threat to national security, so the investigation kind of devolved into, uh, we don't care. Uh, they brought in Ed Ruppelt to revitalize the investigation, which he did in, in 1951, and do a serious investigation. And then we hit the Robertson panel in, in January of 1953, and they said, well, there's nothing to it, and we've got to educate the public. Uh, we should encourage teachers not to accept book reports on flying saucer books and, and, and reports on flying saucers, and we should do these things to debunk the flying saucers and the next guy they brought in officially after Ruppelt was rapidly anti-saucer and it became public relations. In fact, there's letters in the Project Blue Book files from a number of people saying, well, we've been trying to move Project Blue Book from the prestigious intelligence community and ATEC into the Office of Public Affairs for the Secretary of the Air Force. And eventually that's what happened. So you would you would get letters with the um, the office heading from the Secretary of the Air Force Office of Public Information. So it became a public relations uh, uh, operation, which was tripped up periodically by things such as the Coral New Mexico landing in 1964, and then the preposterous explanation handed out for the Michigan sightings in what, 65, where Alan Hynek got kind of ambushed by the press and said, well, it sounds like swamp gas to me when he got off the airplane and he hadn't had a chance to investigate so he was kind of ambushed by the press and he really shouldn't have said well i don't know yet i haven't investigated rather than saying well it sounds like swamp gas but it was yeah it was basically became a public relations affair uh, after after about 1953 until they managed to close it down and that was another public relations gimmick where they did this alleged scientific study and we know by the documentation that the conclusions were drawn prior to the investigation beginning. A guy named Hippler, and I got I've got the text of the letter on my blog, said a letter to Ho, uh, Robert Lowe of the Condon Committee. Hippler was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and he said, "Here's what we'd like you to find: that there's no national security implications. There is nothing of scientific value to be learned by further investigation, and the Air Force has done a good job." Lo and behold, the Condon Committee comes out and says their conclusions, well, there's no national security implication, which we now know is untrue because they've just told us again that there is national security implication. So that negates the Condon Committee, and we throw that out. We know that the Air Force didn't do a good job because we can read the Project Blue Book files and see how they screwed that whole thing up. And there is stuff of scientific value to be learned. One of the cases in the Condon Committee was uh, solved by saying it was a natural phenomenon so rare it had never been, been seen before or since. And I'm thinking if you've got a description of a natural phenomenon like that, maybe the scientific investigation is a way to go on that. So we can look at the history and the documentation available to us and say, yeah, it's all been public relations. I want to ask you also in our next segment about the new 
investigations, the UAP investigations, and of course the switch over from UFO to UAP, because some people feel UFO has become toxic. We'll get into more to talk about here with Kevin Randall, Gene Steinberg, Tim Swartz. You're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Do you have brain fog or loss of short-term memory? Do you suffer from symptoms of hypothyroidism or adrenal fatigue? Do you have deformative joint disease or candida overgrowth? All of these symptoms are associated with mercury toxicity. Most of the mercury toxicity comes from having had gray or silver-looking dental fillings. It does not matter how old the mercury filling is, it still off-gasses 1,000 times more mercury than the EPA considers safe for human exposure. Just replacing your mercury fillings with non-toxic material is only the first step. Unless you apply an effective detoxification protocol, then your body is still poisoned with mercury for the rest of your life. Green Metal Way supplies the precursor to making glutathione. Glutathione is the number one mechanism for removing mercury and other toxins from the body. Order Green Metal Way and get my free report, Mercury Detoxification That Works. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit bestwayprotein.net. That's bestwayprotein.net. Extendivite testimonials on Amazon are very informative. Here's just a few. Amazon customer, five stars. Honestly, this stuff works. Nick, easy to take capsules. For those who can't handle the liquid drops, easy to take Extendivite capsules do the same job. Karoka Fam, works great. Like Extendivite very much. Seems to work as advertised. Thanks. Arlene, five stars. Love this product, Extendivite. Terry W., five stars. Can't say enough. Great product. Freya, five stars. I just ordered another. To get your Extendivite today, go to Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E.com. Or call us at 1-877-928-8822. Extend your life with Extend
Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veterans nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast. Dovetailing that to the current investigation, we have the New York Times report from 2017, and we've had two of the people who wrote that report with us, Ralph Blumenthal and, of course, Leslie Kane. And the thing here is they reveal this $22 million project, which is like spending 10 cents on something in general parlance, and we have this government project, the UAP task force, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes a line item in the budget. Is that all a PR operation, too, or what? Has anything important come from it? I hear crickets. There you go. I said, um, it was June 25th, they were supposed to come out with the big report What last, last last year, June 25th. And I always link that to the anniversary of the Custer Massacre because it was the same kind of government debacle. But they were going to come out with the big report, and we got the report, and there was nothing to it. He said, well, we're going to we get 90 days. You're going to have to come out with another report. And October comes around when the 90 days are up, and we hear nothing. Uh, we have its cockamamie press conference this year, I, which I attended via Zoom, I believe. I was there for the whole 89 minutes. Nothing came about it. One of the congressional representatives questioned the two experts running the project about the um, shutdown of the missiles at uh, Maelstrom Air Force Base in 1968, 1967. And uh, they said, we don't know about that. Well, here's a matter of national security you should have known about because if an outside force can shut down the missiles, a flight of missiles, uh, from the outside, which supposedly you cannot do, shut the entire flight down. That's a matter of national security. And these guys said, well, we don't know about that. Then one of the guys said, well, I, I've heard about it. That gives you an idea of the level of, of interest by the government that they couldn't even look at that case, which clearly showed national security implications. Nothing comes about it. Yes, it's line item in the congressional investigation or that sort of thing, and they're spending money on it. They're appointing an office, and we hear it's going to be this guy or that guy or somebody else is going to be running the thing. But here we are. Since what was it, 2017? The New York Times printed the story. Yes, we're, we're five years down the road, and we're no closer to the answers than we were in, in 2017, or in 1952, as a matter of fact, or 1947, for that matter. Absolutely. Well, I've always called this new thing Twining 2.0. General Twining was the commanding officer of the Air Material Command in 1947, and in September he produced a letter, and he said that the this phenomenon, flying saucers, is something that is not fictitious, is something real and not or illusionary. And he created a 
investigation with a high priority to get to the bottom of it, which was Project Sign. They called Project Saucer because they didn't. This codename Sign was classified. Eventually, it, it supposedly ended. They said, "Well, we found nothing. We've ended the investigation." And all they did was change the code name to Grudge and continue March. And the same thing happened again. Well, we finished our investigation. Here's our final report. And they continued with Project Blue Book. And finally, we get to 1969, and the Condon Committee says, well, you know, there's nothing to it. We've closed out Blue Book, and then we find out that there's still government interest in UFOs. I think it was Robert Todd got a dump of documents from the State Department, and on there was something called Project Moondust. And it's got a UFO component. Well, I look back through some of the Project Blue Book files, and I find some of the cases labeled Moondust. So there was an investigation going on, and Moondust had been affiliated, read into Blue Book, and this is 1985. Robert Todd tried to get more information. He said, well, there was no such thing as moon dust. Turns out there was. They said, well, we never activated. Turns out they did. And then they said, well, the new name is properly classified. You, we can't tell you what it is. So from 1985, we knew that it was a project going on, but it was classified. And then finally in 2017, we get the, the information that, well, here's this $22 million project looking at UFOs. So the whole history of this thing has been hidden away from us. I just don't see how what's going on in today's environment is going to do us any good. It's not going to move us any closer to disclosure. It's not going to tell us anything more. And it's just becoming more of a public relation. Well, we're looking at this stuff. But we're going to call them UAPs now because UFOs mean spacecraft, and everybody with a brain in their head knows, no, it means an unidentified flying object, which may well be a spacecraft, but may not be. And I think UAP is just an attempt to divert the conversation. Well, let's don't look at the UFOs over here. Look at the information we have on UAPs. The other thing we learned by looking at the documentation available to us is the Navy said, in, in response to some FOIA requests, that the information they're looking at is classified, and we can't tell you about it. And in the other documentation we see, they're saying we're really mostly interested in military sources for this information, including military pilots, especially military pilots who may have encountered UFOs. But that's going to be born classified, and we're not going to learn about that. And it looks like they're going to ignore any civilian reports that come in because they're civilians, and what could the civilians possibly know? So I don't have any great expectations for what's going to happen now, given the history that we look at for the last 75 years, or the way this information is being doled out to us and the suggestions that an awful lot of it's going to be born classified. And the guys running the project know nothing of the history of the UFO phenomenon, which you, you have to know if you're going to investigate from today on. You've got to take a look at what historically had been reported. I have been told, and I have not found the evidence to prove this, that there were classified Blue Book files that were not ATEC. They were classified elsewhere. They were held elsewhere, away from Blue Book public relations area at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And Dan Sheehan is one of those who told me that, and, and I, I got the interview with him in the book UFOs and the Deep State about that sort of thing. So we look at the totality of the history, and this just seems like it's another public relations ploy to uh, divert our attentions. And, and they've had a lot of help with the pandemic and things going on in the world today to divert our attention from UFOs, which haven't really affected our lives anyway in the last 75 years. So why should we expect them to, to do that now to the, the things that matter today that we have to deal with today? Sounds like it's never going to end. It's just going to go on year after year and there will be hopes and dreams and they'll never be fulfilled. 
people who are disclosure advocates were having wet dreams over the alleged seriousness with which the government was taking the matter, and we see where that led us. They're not off-world. We have no evidence they're spaceships. Of course, they have no evidence that it's conventional test aircraft or from other countries. So where do you go from there? By the way, folks, Kevin's going to stick with us for the After the Paracast podcast because a few thousand other things we want to ask him about. But for a quick sum up of all this in our lifetimes, and you and I are slightly over 21, will we ever have a real answer? The aliens control the answer. If they're really here and they want us to know, they can let us know with evidence that would be irrefutable. If we're expecting the government to tell us, I don't think that's going to happen. There's no motivation to tell us. The motivation is to keep the evidence buried. And I think the evidence is buried in the bureaucrats that are just below the top echelon in the, in our government. They're the ones that know the answers and they're not going to tell us anytime soon. The best we can hope for is the aliens decide to reveal themselves, in which case then we'll know the answers. Hey, Kevin, tell our listeners where they can find more of the stuff you do. Well, I have a blog called at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com where I talk about a lot of this stuff and you can see a lot of the things and you can, you can learn uh, that I do a three-minute segment once a week on Coast to Coast. Uh, it's usually around 20 minutes after the hour in the first hour of Coast to Coast on Thursday or Friday. I think this week I'm, I'm on Thursday again. I do a radio show on the Echo and Broadcast Network. Uh, actually, radio and television and a lot of platforms. You can take a look and see me interviewing guests and that sort of thing. The books are available at Amazon, of course. The latest is Understanding Roswell, which I think provides some information that hasn't been published about Roswell before, such as the information about the Project Mogul Balloon Array discussion. Roswell in the 21st Century gives you a good idea of other aspects of the Roswell case. I did a book called Encounters in the Desert, and then I'm done. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter if you look for the Paracast. Look for the Paracast on Facebook. Check out the Paracast.shop for branded merchandise at great prices with T-shirts and caps and all that other good stuff. The Paracast.shop, the Paracast.shop. And we also have the Paracast Plus. The Paracast Plus is a streaming service that includes this show free of the network ads, better quality audio, plus the After the Paracast podcast, where Kevin will be back. Go to theparacast.plus for more info. Use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20, to get a 20% discount on five-year and lifetime subscriptions. Theparacast.plus, that's P-O-U-S, theparacast.plus. Kevin Randall, we can have you on for 10 hours and never run out of material. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Glad to be here. Give me a call sometime. Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.